six places in the Bible, Jesus miraculously feeds thousands of people. When things had really started to pick up steam for him, huge crowds started following him to hear what he had to say about the kingdom of God because they wanted a miracle cure for him to heal their pain, their bodies, because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. They are a crowd of 5,000 men. They are a different crowd of 4,000 people. They are about 5,000 men besides women and children. Thanks, Matthew, for the aside. The 4,000 again, 5,000 men sitting on the ground in groups of about 50 each, Jesus says in Luke, which is weird. They are about 5,000 all. Jesus and the disciples are trying to get away off by themselves for a break. No, they're there specifically to engage the crowds. The crowds keep following him. They keep following him. It's the end of the day. It's almost Passover. They've spent three days together with nothing to eat. It's evening. The day is drawing to a close. Jesus has compassion on the crowd because they're like sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion for the crowd because it's been three days and they've had nothing to eat. It's the disciples who notice that people are hungry. It's Jesus who notices. Jesus tells the disciples, you give them something to eat. In Mark, Jesus just sort of like mentions to the disciples, the people must be hungry. Some of them have come a long way. There's talk of money, that six months pay wouldn't buy enough food for all of them. Plus they're in the middle of nowhere. And they're so hungry they'd faint on the way. Jesus asks, what have you got? Go and see. When they find out, they say, five loaves and two fish. He asks, how many loaves do you have? They say, seven and a few small fish. Nothing here but five loaves and two fish. Seven loaves and a few small fish. No more than five loaves and two fish unless we're going to go buy more food for all these people. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many people? And Jesus takes the five loaves, the seven loaves, the two fish, the few small fish, blesses them, in some cases breaks them, and there is a great feast with leftovers, lots of leftovers, 12 baskets full, seven baskets full, 12, seven, 12, 12. Then Jesus sends them away. He gets back in his boat and sails away. And the book of John, always putting a very fine point on things, ends the story this way. When the people saw the sign he had done, they began to say, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. When I was a kid growing up in evangelical church, these stories, all of them in whatever version, however many fish, bread, loaves, these stories were about supernatural miracles. Something impossible happened something not explainable by any natural or scientific laws. When I was a kid, Jesus picked up actual bread, five loaves, seven loaves, actual fish, two of them, a few small ones, with his actual God-man hands and did some kind of close-up magic. Keep your eyes on his hands. I used to wonder what it actually looked like when the disciples started passing out the bread. Like, what actually happened? Did Jesus break the bread and then hand the pieces to the disciples? And when they passed it out, like, what happened? The first person took a piece and then broke it and then gave it to the next. And then they took a piece and broke it and gave that to the next. And, and then 
were the extras just parts that the people didn't eat? Like all the hunks of leftover communion bread, like all heaped up together? Why did it even look like this proliferation of bread? And the fish seems even harder with the, the bones and the flesh. When I was a kid, stories of supernatural miracles were part of what proved that Jesus was unique, proved that Jesus was also God, precisely because the stories were supernatural. When I was a little kid, that little boy, even though he only shows up in one version, he's the money. Evangelical Sunday school teachers zero in on that little kid. He holds out his meal tremulously. He comes forward boldly. He's reluctant. He's idealistic. He doesn't complicate things. He just responds. He acts with simple faith. He's drawn to Jesus. We should be like him. We should make a construction paper basket and fill it with construction paper fishes and loaves. Look what impossible things God can do when we act with faith. As I got older, I met more and more Christians for whom those supernatural miracle stories were just stories. That's one of the reasons I used to think that stories was a dumb way to talk about faith, because they were just stories. They were explainable stories, explainable by natural and scientific laws. Here's what happened in those nice progressive Protestant church stories. When the disciples asked the 4,000 or the 5,000, do you have any food? They said no. They were tired, hungry, thinking of their meager supplies, which, okay, they did have with them. They did have a little something with them, but not really enough to mention. When asked if they had food, they said no. And the disciples panicked and told, everyone that, told Jesus that everyone was super hungry. And Jesus, yes, that part is real. He felt compassion for them. He also knew, said the progressive Protestant preacher, a little something about human nature. So he had them sit down. He had them sit down in smaller groups so they could see each other. He brought up the one person who'd said honestly, yeah, I have a little something, a kid. And then he took in his actual human hands, the bread, the fish, however many there were, he blessed them, he broke them, and shazam, people were so moved, so inspired that they dug into their bags for little bags of peanuts and a protein bar they'd been carrying for a while, a little Tupperware full of grapes. And when they spread it all out in the middle, there was more than enough. There were leftovers. Here's what I feel about that. Womp, womp. Sad trombone. What a downgrade. What does it say about Jesus? If he doesn't do impossible magic tricks, is he unique? Is he God? Why get out of bed on a Sunday morning or even come out on a Sunday evening? If all that Jesus did was inspire people to share, he's nothing more than a really, really good kindergarten teacher. <laughs> Telling stories about a really good guy, a really good kindergarten teacher was not compelling to me. It didn't prove anything. Getting ready for this sermon series, the yes and one about improv, we watched a conversation with Keegan-Michael Keel, you know, uh, Peel, uh, Key, you know, Key and Peel. And he talks about how when people don't really understand improv, they say something like, oh, I could never do that. I could never think that fast. No, he says, it's not about thinking fast. It's not about moving forward at all. It's about backing up. Backing up to see more and more of the picture, asking questions like, well, if that's true, what else is true? And backing up like that, asking questions like that, he says, you begin to understand things that you thought were impossible suddenly can happen. You begin to find out what the 
world of the scene is really like. And the rest, he says, is just playing. Gilead's own Susan Harmon, who does tons of improv all over the city, says that in an improv scene, she rarely sees something great that includes the impossible. Like, who's that at the door? Uh Uh-oh, aliens. On the other hand, she says, you see the miraculous all the time when people understand what more is possible. So, so what if, what if the stories of Jesus feeding the 5,000, the 4,000, what if they are just stories about how there's actually enough for everyone to have not just what they need, but extra? What if they're just stories about what's possible when people are honest about what they have? What's possible when people share what they've got? What if the stories are about a really, really good kindergarten teacher who's so good that he inspires people by the thousand to share what they have so no one goes hungry? What if what's needed in the world isn't the impossible? What if what's needed isn't supernatural? What if what's needed is only miraculous? The biggest miracle I've experienced personally is this. When I was growing up in an evangelical family, I used to joke that my parents would march in the pride parade if they lived to be 500 years old. Like that was their rate of change. When I was a kid, they were definitely love the sinner, hate the sin Christians. My dad used to say that if someone held a gun to his head, he'd say that homosexuality was a sin, which led to my imagining my dad getting mugged and like yelling confusingly at the mugger, like, I think it's a sin to be gay. And the guy would be like, give me your fucking wallet, bigot. (laughs) They were conservative evangelicals. They had a kind of sad shrug about the whole thing. Unfortunately, this was their biblical theological position. Then they started meeting gay friends of my brothers and mine. My dad started saying things like, I don't think we need a law against people getting married. You know, it's not easy. Let people try it. So, so like, not perfect, but, you know progress. I mean, like I said, 500 years, you know, slow progress. And then my dad started to do a lot of community theater, which as I've said, is a mixed blessing. But he met way more people, way more kinds of people than he would have met in his little conservative churches. And years ago, he stood backstage with a straight friend. Did you get that thank you card from James? The guy asked dad. Yeah, it was nice. There was a Bible verse on it. Uh, yeah. yeah, I guess so. That's right. I thought James, the guy who sent the card was gay, dad said, dad's friend said. Yeah, dad whispered back backstage. I don't know, I guess, you know, some gay people are Christian, some Christians are gay people. Like, I don't know how it sounds to you, but when my dad told me this story, it was like aliens are at the fucking door. (laughs) My dad, my dad dad and it didn't stop then my dad started asking for book recommendations books by lgbtq christians books by lgbtq affirming christians dad had an hour-long conversation that he keeps talking about with tony campalo who's an old evangelical pastor in his old age tony finally is coming out about being affirming and dad preached a sermon that made a visitor and his husband say thanks for the affirming sermon while vigorously shaking dad's hand at the door and dad was like i'm not sure i meant to be quite that affirming And at every step along the way, I tried to tell him how much it might mean to people. 
not just the person who came out to him saying, I thought you might be a safe person to tell, but to that person's friends. And not just to the uh, LGBTQ people in his congregations, like he thinks there aren't any, but to people in his congregations who have queer family, not just to the people where he lives in ruralish Pennsylvania, but to my friends here, my friend, who when they heard that my dad had changed, teared up because maybe it was possible that their dad could change too. My dad thinks he'll be fired if he's openly affirming, but he's doing a shitty job of keeping it quiet. At a recent Bible study, he talked about how the church has to love queer youth. He quoted statistics about depression and suicide rates among queer youth. My dad, my dad. And a couple of weeks ago, 2019, he went to preach at a camp meeting in the conservative part of Michigan where I was a little kid. He met up with a bunch of old friends, a couple of whom told them that their 22-year-old son is gay and how they've struggled with that. Dad said, you know, I didn't feel totally ready for that conversation, but I've been waiting, kind of eager too. And he felt even less ready when the couple came back and said their 22-year-old dad would like to, their 22-year-old kid would like to talk to dad. So their dad is in the middle of nowhere. And all he has is a couple of books, a couple of conversations. And he says, yeah, he'll meet the guy. Dad's bold, he's reluctant, he's idealistic, he doesn't complicate things, he just responds, he acts with simple faith. And the guy tells dad his story and asks dad two questions. Can my faith be real and could I be right that God loves me just the way I am? And my dad, my dad says, yes, your faith is real. And yes, God loves you just the way you are. It is a miracle. And it turns out it's possible. I thought it was a downgrade from the impossible supernatural to the miraculous, comma, explainable. From unique Jesus to good kindergarten teacher Jesus. But we live in a time, we always do, where there is actually plenty to go around enough for everyone to have not just what they need, but extra. There is now no need to scrimp, not among human beings as a collective, I mean. As a collective, if we turn out our pockets, there is enough that people need not go hungry, need not go without health care, need not be detained in camps, because if they come here, there will not be enough for everyone. There is always enough. But for us, human beings as a collective, to share it, that would take a fucking miracle. Jesus, for me anyway, still does a kind of close-up magic. It helps me to see the bigger picture and what else is possible. He still feels compassion. He still tells his disciples to feed the hungry, reminds us that there is enough. There are many, many ways this can unfold, as many gospels as there are gospel writers, as many miracle stories as there are people to tell them. But maybe it's always been the case that what we need isn't the impossible, just the miraculous.